you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Good to see everybody uh, come out today. Um, I appreciate you uh, uh, letting me uh, step away and take a short vacation. So uh, it was a very, very nice 10 days of, uh, of just not having to think about anything um, other than uh, resting and myself and was able to take care of some things I've been needing to take care of for a while. I went out and got some new glasses, which I don't have on today, so I'm still half blind. Um, <laughs> So uh, maybe no more like squinting at you when I'm trying to see you and all that good stuff and take care of some things for my parents and, uh, and just spend some time regrouping. And um, I tell you what makes a good rest. A good rest is one where about halfway through it, you can't wait to get back. And, uh, and that's the way this was. And it was really, really wonderful. So I really appreciate you doing that. And um, I uh, watched the sermon and I've heard just tons of feedback from last Sunday's sermon. So shout out to Missy... Uh, for um, preaching a phenomenal, phenomenal message and closing us out of our, our flip series. Uh, from now until Advent, we're not going to do a series. I'm just going to preach from lectionary. I'm going to kind of go as the Spirit leads and may even jump out of lectionary a bit, uh, but not today. Today we are going to go to lectionary, but we're going to go to the Old Testament. Yes, I can actually preach from the Old Testament. It's rare, but it happens. Um, so we're going to go to the book of Ruth, almost to the gospel of Ruth. There should be a gospel of Ruth. Um, yeah. Um, so let's go to the book of Ruth. There is, yeah. Perfect. Oh, yeah, Ruth. Yeah, we have. I wasn't even making the connection. Yes, we have a resident Ruth. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about Ruth. My grandmother's name is Ruth. I'm going to talk about one of my grandmothers this morning, not that one, but I, I do have a grandmother named Ruth. So we're going to do a bit of reading today. This is actually the, the lectionary reading is kind of long today, and I chose not to, not to shorten it. In fact, I, I was tempted to go ahead and read the whole chapter. And we will, just not all at once. Um, let's go to Ruth, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Nothing to get your week going like a sad story, right? Uh, so that's how we're going to start off, with a, with a sad story. And um, you know, if we were preaching the whole book of Ruth, some of you already know the end. So you're like, that's ah, not that bad of a story, but it certainly starts out as a really, really sad uh, story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to mess these names up like all morning, so um, just get used to that, but I'm going to try my best. Uh, even though I know the correct pronunciation, it's really difficult for this southern guy to do. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, just so you know this, as we read through the story, Moab was an enemy of Israel. An enemy of nation and an enemy nation. And the writer of Ruth 
chooses to always make sure we remember that, right? From the land of the Moabites. Every time he talks about Ruth, from the land of the Moabites. Um, Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters, with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she, where she had been living she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even if death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Now, in my family, we have a wedding tradition um, in which my granny always does a reading at the weddings, of, did a reading at the weddings of our family members. Um, my granny has since went on to her award, but growing up, this was a very common occurrence. Uh, didn't matter who the preacher was, didn't matter where the ceremony was, um, even saw her do it in, in ceremonies that weren't in church. But our family always had my granny read the final words of our reading this morning, this commitment that Ruth uh, makes to Naomi. She would always read that, and then she would always follow it up with a reading from 1 Corinthians 13, also often read at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant 
or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now these are scriptures that if you've ever been to a wedding, or perhaps even in your own wedding, um, you've probably heard these scriptures read. They're very common scriptures to be read uh, at, at a wedding. But in our family, it carried a little bit more meaning. And it was kind of a no-brainer that my granny would read these at weddings because in a very literal way, uh, my granny had lived out that kind of a commitment. Um, My granny was a civilian in England during World War II. Her and her family lived on the the southern coast, Penzance, England. If anyone's ever been there, I hear it's beautiful. Never been. Um, Apparently, my uh, family hails from this beautiful little European uh, village where tourists all over Europe flock to, and I've never actually been fortunate enough to go there. But during the war, um, even though Penzance wasn't a military stronghold, German planes would often unload their incendiary bombs before they tried to fly back over the channel to lower weight and also to come back uh, without any weapons, as they were supposed to do. And so Penzance in Cornwall was, uh, was... heavily devastated during World War II. Um, In fact, Granny, whenever she would talk to me about this, she would often talk about the fact that her family believed it was the apocalypse. Uh, They thought this was the end of the world for them. Um, And there was little question around that during the time of the war. But during the war, she uh, happened to fall in love with and marry my grandfather, my papa, who was an American soldier stationed in Cornwall, Penzance, uh, at that time. And uh, they got married, and she became, uh, very quickly became an immigrant to the United States of America. Now, in Europe during World War II, there were all kinds of uh, grand ideas about what the United States of America was like. Um, it was the land of milk and honey. Um, It was the land of brave warriors who showed up to rescue those in need. And it was kind of monolithic, right? I mean, her ideas of America were New York City and um, those kind of images. But when she arrived in the southern United States, uh, she found a different reality. She discovered very quickly that even though she shared the same language, sort of, as Southerners, um, she certainly did not share the same culture, and she became an outsider, and it was a culture shock. For some time, my granny had difficulty with this. She was alone here. Her family remained in England for some years. They eventually all did move over here, but for some years, um, she was an outsider. My papa's siblings were enamored with her fine clothes so much so that they chose to borrow them whenever they wanted to, something she was not used to. Um, She also never thought to ask, was there indoor plumbing where she was moving? Um, She did not realize that at that time, in the 40s, in the South, there were still homes that did not have indoor plumbing. She had grown up with indoor plumbing in her home in England. She would sometimes humorously tell the story of how um, 
the first time she said, you know, where's the bathroom after looking all over the tiny house they were in, uh, she was pointed to uh, a building outside with a half moon on it. Um, when she got out there, she asked where the toilet paper was, and she was told it's the Sears and Roebuck catalog. She thought she was moving into the home of someone who owned a ranch, because in her mind, I have a farm, in her mind was these American images of a western ranch, when what my grandfather and his family owned was a small cattle and goat farm. When she got here, there were also some big bumps in the road, which um, caused life to not quite turn out the way that she had imagined. And this is true with a lot of immigration stories, by the way. Immigration stories, even the ones where people have family and support systems, like my grandmother did, um, it only takes a few bumps in the road and, and, and the story can change drastically. In fact, for an immigrant, a bump in the road can very quickly become a mountain that is very difficult to overcome and to climb. Yet throughout her life, the reading from this morning, these final words, remained her guiding North Star. So much so that these words, in the King James English, of course, are inscribed on her gravestone where her and Papa now Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also. If aught but death part thee and me. Now while weddings uh, may seem like an often um, appropriate time to read this heartfelt vow from Ruth, uh, we often take this passage and appropriate it in romantic language as a commitment made between spouses. And although my granny did use these words in that way as a North Star for her own journey as an immigrant leaving her people and coming to live with my papa's people, leaving her church and coming to a new kind of, uh, of church here in America um, and, and, and kind of navigating all of those waters, even though it can be appropriated in that way, this text does not emerge in the setting of a wedding celebration. In fact, quite the opposite. This text emerges in a moment when three women have lost their husbands. This comes from a time of grief. Within 10 years this happened, y'all. Within 10 years, the mother loses her husband and her sons. Three wives lose their husbands and two women lose their husbands and their father-in-law. Now in this culture, it's as devastating as that is, in this culture, this is a significantly devastating blow to the lives of these women who don't own anything really other than what their husbands have given them and are going to have a hard time making a go of it without a man to cover them with his property, with his finances, with all those things which males in that culture were privileged to have and women weren't so privileged to have. 
This is why there's this impetus in the text. I'm sure this drives my daughter Olivia crazy because she came home from youth camp and I was like, what did you learn at youth camp? She said, well, one thing I learned is that a lot of girls feel like they can't live unless they have a man. (laughs) And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, every girl in my dorm felt like they had to have a man and they had to find him that week at youth camp. (laughs) But in this culture, you kind of needed a man. And there was this impetus in the reading if you, if you caught it, even Naomi senses this. And she tells her, her daughters-in-law, please go back and get married. I have nothing to offer you. I am poor. I am broke. I am old and I am not married and I cannot support you. I, I, I can't offer you anything. You're young. Go back and get married. Have a covering. Start a family. All of those things which were part of that culture. And so this is a time of grief. This is a time of suffering. This is a time of, 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 of suffering a deep blow uh, to, their, to their livelihoods and to the livelihoods of these women. So ironically, even though we often imagine these words as being this very romanticized, heartfelt commitment, it's words that are actually spoken during a very difficult time. Let me tell you something about the story of Ruth, just a little bit of overview, even though we didn't read the whole story. The story of Ruth begins as an immigrant story and it ends as an immigrant story. At the beginning of the story, Ruth and, and, and excuse me, Naomi and her husband are, um, are immigrants to the land of Moab. And then later on, Naomi goes back with Ruth and they become, even though uh, Naomi is returning, she brings with her an immigrant from the land of Moab named Ruth. In the midst of great famine, you have this guy, Elimelech, who's leaving the town of Bethlehem, which ironically means the house of bread, because there is no bread. This was common in this day. You have famines that would sweep through the Middle East and people, even though It was kind of an era where uh, nomads were beginning to settle. There was still some nomadic activity. Individuals and families would have to move from one location to the other to make sure that that they were able to uh, meet ends. Especially those in the lower social class, which may be where they belong at since they did have to move. They didn't have the savings stored up in grain to make it through the famine. And so they had to move away in hopes that they could make a living and feed themselves. So they leave this small village of Bethlehem. They move to this enemy territory named Moab. And within 10 years, they are faced with grief and painful tragedies. Elimelech dies. The two young men die. um, And they leave these three widows to fend for themselves. Now let's just talk about the bind that these women are in. First of all, Naomi is an immigrant in hostile Moab. Not only is she a widow, not only has she lost the covering of her husband and his resources, she's in an area where she is currently an outsider. Moreover, Ruth and and Orpah may have been shunned by their fellow Moabites for marrying Israelite men. Such was also a common practice. For that culture. Also, Ruth and Orpah may have been the daughters of widows. If you notice, Naomi tells them, go to your mother's house. 
not your father's house, which would have been strange in that world to use that language. So it's possible that these women not only have lost their husbands, but they have lost their fathers as well. Moreover, these women have no husbands and no one to lay claim on their well-being. Now, Naomi has a very painful reaction to these new realities. Um, By the way, Naomi, the name means pleasant. But she has a very typical theological response to the suffering she has experienced in Moab. She tells her daughters-in-law, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now, if you were to continue to read this story on out in the next couple of verses, you'll see how internalized this theology was for her. She internalizes it and changes her name. Tamara, meaning bitter, because she says, God has dealt bitterly with me. In Naomi's view, life as she knew it was over and would never get better. Because God had destined her for bitterness. And she was theologically afflicted. But thankfully, Naomi is not the main character of our story. Even though she is an Israelite in a book written for and by Israelites, Ruth the Moabite is the main character. In this narrative that is written for and by the people who are her enemy, she steps into the spotlight. And thankfully, unlike bitter Mara, Ruth means friend. Now, for those of you who don't know the rest of the story, uh, what starts out as the loss, a great loss, they end up moving back into Israel. Ruth finds a man named Boaz. Uh, they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes the king of Israel. Fast forward to the New Testament, we find out Ruth is included, obviously, in the genealogy of Jesus himself, part of the lineage of the Messiah. But what's, what is profound about this story may not seem profound at first. Because in Ruth, we don't have a story where God powerfully marches in and just redeems the situation. There's really no moment in Ruth in which God makes any kind of intentional, authoritative move on behalf of Ruth and Naomi. It's not that kind of story. The angels don't appear. There are no heavenly hosts going out and fighting their battles for them. There's no prophet to guide them along the way. There's really no vision that they've been given to follow. What you have is the story of two friends. Two friends who are committed to one another. The hero in this story is not necessarily God, but a friend. Ruth, who refused to abandon her friend at the lowest point of their lives. In the book of Ruth, it is fierce, excuse me, in the book of Ruth, it is the fierce loyalty of friendship that saves the day. 
You know, sometimes I think about the ways that technology has redefined words like friend and follower. These are words central to the vocabulary of Christian community. Yet in our technologically driven world, these are things which can be turned on and turned off with the click of a button. Friend is not some arbitrary designation we should assign to someone that we barely know. Friendship is more. Friendship is a deep commitment. Friendship is loyal love. It is the choice to be with someone even when it's not fun. While our world has defined friendship as something you can easily click on and click off, scriptures reveal to us something much deeper about the power of friendship. Not only in the story of Ruth, but in stories like David and Jonathan even. And we could go through a whole list of them. Elijah and Elisha. Many others. Where friendship is something much deeper. As C.S. Lewis says, friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of one another. In the story of Ruth, it means it's the means through which God breaks into a dire situation to show his faithfulness. Even though God is kind of a secondary character in the narrative, God is present and he is there. And it is through this cultivation of friendship that the groundwork is laid for God to do what only God can do through his divine faithfulness. Or as Catherine Sockenfeld said, Catherine Sockenfeld, by the way, is a phenomenal uh, feminist scholar, um, if anyone's ever interested in picking up her stuff. She said this, she said, faithful human relationships reflect divine care and therefore reflect the covenantal care of community. Now, I didn't come with anything really profound this morning. Um, there are some really profound things we could dive into in the book of Ruth. But even though it doesn't seem profound, I'm here to propose that perhaps one of the most subversive things we can do today as the church is to model what true and loving, committed friendships look like. As the world redefines what they are, Maybe, just maybe, we can testify to what they can be and what they have been. Now, some scholars believe that Ruth, now it's based in the time of Judges. Some scholars uh, feel that Ruth was written um, as a response to some of the reforms Ezra and Nehemiah were making after the exile period. In other words, even though it happened during the time of the judges, it wasn't published until the time of the exile. And it was published in response to some of Ezra and Nehemiah's um, reforms. For those of you familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, these are two guys, a, a prophet and a priestly figure, who um, are rebuilding the temple and the walls and all those things and trying to restore Judaism back to the land after being gone for a long time in Babylon, after the exile, several generations had passed since they had been in the land of Jerusalem. 
or of Israel, excuse me. Ezra and Nehemiah were proposing sweeping reforms, such as deporting non-Israelite migrants and forcing all interracial marriages between Israelites and non-Israelites to end in divorce, with the suggestion also that immigrant wives after the divorces be sent back to their nations of birth. Now, not everyone in the Old Testament was okay with Ezra and Nehemiah's reforms. You first see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the first Old Testament figure to kind of offer a reaction to those reforms. Because Ezra and Nehemiah were proposing a worship, a temple worship setting, in which there would be a strict reading of Torah, which excluded strangers, immigrants, the lame, and eunuchs, or any of those whose sexual anatomy had been altered. Yet in the book of Isaiah, we find a vision where God is opening a table to the lame and the sick again. And they will be brought, not only will they be brought to the table in Isaiah's envision, but their names will be recorded on the walls of the temple as a testimony. Isaiah offered a vision where the lame and the altered and the sick are all welcomed at God's table and won't be turned away. The story of Ruth also offers to us a powerful critique of these reforms as well. Not only by painting a picture of how the power of friendship can overcome cultural and religious differences, but by showing how God uses an outsider, even one considered an enemy, to restore Israel's royal line. Our gospel reading this morning, by the way, if we were to read the gospel reading from the lectionary, is Mark 12. Verses 28 through 34. In which Jesus is asked, Lord, what are the greatest commandments? And this is, of course, during that whole section of Mark where they're trying to get Jesus to trip up and say something and create controversy. And after a brief debate with them, Jesus comes to this conclusion. And he says, the greatest two commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God love one another. Sometimes in our iterations of spirituality, we often imagine the thing we really need to get right the most is our relationship, our love relationship with God. But Jesus says that equally important to your relationship with God is your relationship with one another. How can you say you love God if you don't love your brother, we find in other places in the New Testament. This teaching by Jesus, of course, was not only words, but Jesus had modeled it himself. While the Pharisees had dedicated their whole life to making sure their relationship to God, their vertical relationship, was right, they had failed to make sure that they also had kept relationships right on a horizontal level. In their efforts to be holy, in their efforts to be right, and in their efforts to be pure, they had not built relationships with the kind of people that God loved. Our spirituality is not just rooted in our love for God. It is rooted in our love and commitment to one another. Jesus modeled this in his life, and he modeled this in his death. 
He modeled this in the commandments he gave to the church to follow. Do this in remembrance of me. When he relocated man's relationship with God from the sterile sacrifice table of a temple to a dinner table where he broke bread and where he shared the cup. And in these stories, not just in Mark, but in the Gospels, and in these stories where Jesus shared the table and made friends with those who in the sterile temple community were outsiders, in those settings, people found God. I mean, just think about these moments. Zacchaeus, I'm going I'm to make everything right. I'm going to turn this thing around. And you find this time and time again, the woman who gets at Jesus' feet and breaks the oil open and pours it on his feet. These are relationships that were not built because Jesus stood on the steps of the temple and said some really smart things. These relationships were built because Jesus sat at the tables with them. And he got to know them. He became part of their lives and he was committed to them even unto the death. Right? Even until uh, unto his own crucifixion. That's the kind of radical love that the church can model. Because it's been modeled for us. Years ago, I had an epiphany. Uh, a lot of young preachers go through this phase where we want to be like the next Billy Graham. Uh, I wanted to up that a little bit. I wanted to be like, you know, Tozer or uh, Wilkinson or one of those guys, right? Wilkerson or one of those guys. And I remember, like, listening to a video, an audio recording of one of these old evangelist, uh, evangelistic preachers. And he was going on and on for a good 20 minutes about how he stays up at night and weeps over the lost. I feel so bad because I tried one night, by the way. Uh... You know, I thought, well, nighttime seems to be the best time to weep over the lost. So, it works for them. Let's give it a go. And after a while, I did find myself weeping for the lost, but it, it took me, and by the way, my understandings of what all that means has drastically changed, but bear with me. But it was only those that I personally knew. That's what it took to get the tears flowing. And it occurred to me how ridiculous it is to stand up and claim you have a heart for something or for someone and not ever make the effort to get to know that person or that group of people. Right? How we resist making friends with those outside of our own social circles, outside of our own cultural and religious beliefs, we don't want anybody to challenge that sometimes, and sometimes it's for other reasons. But when I read Ruth, I find a story of how powerful friendship can be, how friendship makes outsiders insiders, how it brings them into the fold, how it does away even with the outsider paradigm. And in the story, people often credit Boaz with being the kinsman redeemer. But I don't think Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in this story. Ruth is. A friend is. A committed friend is the hero of this story. Amen? Stand with me.
I don't know if I'm right or not. I like to think of myself as a little bit of a futurist, but I'm probably horrible at it. Um, But I'm fascinated by thinking about the future. I was talking to my brother-in-law this week, um, who's a very good friend of mine. By the way, our relationship's a great example of two people who are very different in a lot of ways, but have remained very, very faithful friends. We differ on a lot of things, theologically, uh, politically, philosophically, otherwise. But we were just talking about the times we live in and some of the things that are going on, and, and he just said to me, he said, I just don't know what to think anymore. I, I really, I, I literally don't know what to think anymore. I don't know how to perceive things. It's, it's, and he's an engineer, a very, very intelligent engineer. And he says to me, it's just too complicated. I can't, I don't know what to do with all of it. And I agreed with him. And he said, he said to me, he says, something's got to give. Something, something's got to, has got to change somewhere because it's, it, it, it's getting too tough. And it's so easy to be deceived and not to know what's going on and not know what's right and not know what's wrong. It's just, it's just getting to be too much. And I shared with him a conversation I had with my wife a few weeks back about this very thing and, and how it's just things are just getting so uh, confusing and complicated. And I predicted this, and I may be way wrong, um, but I believe that in my daughter's lifetime, there will be a mass return to simplicity. I think there will be a revival of simplicity in my daughter's lifetime. Not not without some very, very hard times ahead of us. But I think when the dust settles and the clouds move out, there's going to be a radical return to simpler lives. Sometimes we resist that. But our reading this morning and the scriptures throughout remind us over and over again that it's in the simple things that sometimes we don't think of as profound where God shows up most powerfully. Where the power of God is harnessed and and is seen and and is beautiful is in these very unprofound ways. So with that in mind, Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being enamored with profundity, with the bright lights, with the celebrity, with the power, with all those things that our human selves desire. Forgive us, God for being enamored with those things. And help us now, God, to find you in the simple things, in our friendships, in our meals together, in our time together, in our weeping together, and in our laughing together, God. God, may we be a testimony to a world that is filled with so much noise and confusion that there's still such a thing as real friendship, real love, and real commitment to one another. May may we be ever so reminded of this. 
as we receive from the table this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Our musicians will come and servers will get ready to share in the table together. Forgive me for going a little long. I had a week off. That's just what happens. You're invited this morning to receive from the table. If you're a guest with us, you're not required to, but you are certainly welcome to. We'll have prayer partners, prayer partners on either side of the uh, front here this morning. And so if you need prayer for anything at all, even if you don't receive communion this morning, that's fine. You can still go get prayer. Um, please visit one of our prayer partners. We would, we would love to pray with you. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come. Because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.